1: I'm Ian Drake, and this is the New Books in Law podcast on the New Books Network. Today, we are joined by Seth Barrett Tillman. He is a lecturer in law at the Maynooth University Department of Law in Ireland. And unlike most of our podcasts, instead of a book, a new book, this is actually a recent article. It is an article on a well-known military history case, oh, excuse me, a military um, Civil Relations case, it's called Ex parte Merriman, and the name of the article is Ex parte Merriman: Myth, History, and Scholarship. It is in Volume Two or Issue Two of the Military History Review, Law Review, Military Law Review. Excuse me, Volume Two Twenty Four, and uh, I would like to welcome uh, Seth to the show today. Thank, Thank you, Ian. And what I want to start out with is uh, just a general introductory question about this. Uh, we're going to have the article posted on our website for people to link to. Um, but this is an um, article that is one of many on this well-known case uh, from the Civil War period. But how did you come to decide to write about this and contribute something else to the debate about it? Well, thanks, thanks so, so much, much for
0: having me, on, and, you know, and I, I really, really appreciate this, this opportunity. opportunity. Um, I came to this article uh, quite fortuitously. I'm an American. I'm an American-trained legal academic. I I live and teach in an Irish university. Uh, Indeed, most of my publications are on 18th century uh, legal matters, not 19th century. I'm not a 19th century expert. I'm not a Civil War expert. I'm not a military law expert. And I'm not even a habeas expert. I came to this subject quite fortuitously. Uh, What happened? was I was asked to design a syllabus, what we call here a module, in American law uh, for my students here, most of whom are Irish. And uh, making a syllabus on American law uh, for foreign students uh, poses some challenges. Uh, one of the challenges is that uh, my students tend to be younger. My students are college students. Uh, the degree they get is called an LLB, a Bachelor of Laws, or a BCL, a, a three-year equivalent degree, rather than the American JD degree. So instead of my Students being 25 and up, they're, they're around 19. And the knowledge base they have is going to be different from American students. They're, my students are going to know more about Ireland and Europe than they will about the New World of the United States. But but probably the biggest difference was would be that a course on American law needs some justification. Because students who are <coughs> preparing for a career in law or thinking about a career in law here in Ireland, they need to know about their own legal system and they need to know about EU law. So the the usual justification for an American law course would be that America is an influential polity, and that there's always benefit from learning about another system, comparative law and foreign law. Those are are weak justification. So when I'm thinking of this course, what struck me was that one of the things that these students have to know to make sense of their world is they have to understand the American legal apparatus for war making. Uh, Because in fact, that's what so many non-Americans see about America in the news, and that's what they have to make sense of, how America runs its machinery uh, for military intervention and for war making. And so about half my syllabus is the syllabus of American military cases, starting with the Civil War, going into World War II, and and past World War II into the War on Terror. And I put ex parte Merryman on syllabus as the first case. Uh, Now, the interesting thing is I had never read Ex parte Merriman until I came to this country. I knew what it stood for, at least I thought I knew what it stood for, because I had studied American legal history, I had studied American uh, uh, Civil War history, uh, and I knew what was said about it, I knew the summaries, I knew the squibs, but when I actually took the time to prepare for my first class, I actually read Ex parte Merriman, and and I had this very strange apprehension or uh, impression that the, the standard narrative uh, which is what I call it. that is, what is commonly said about ex parte merriment is not actually what the case says. Um, and that's how I came um, to write this paper, although I should have to uh, give some credit. Uh, I have this apprehension, uh, but I did discover that there were a few other people who pointed out this, and I'll explain in detail later, this sort of dichotomy between what the case actually says and what most people think the case stands for. There were a few people who've talked about this, but they're, <clears throat> they're in the minority, and even when they make this point, they don't put a lot of weight on it. It's almost as if having gotten the, the discrepancy between what people say and what it actually says, out of the way, they, they return to some what they think is a more important or more interesting point. And so I might as well tell you, you know, up front what that great dichotomy is as I see it. The, the standard narrative of ex parte Merriman is that Chief Justice Tawney issued an order during the Civil War directed to either General Kidwalader or President Lincoln or the Army, directing uh, the defendant to release John Merriman, who was the petitioner who brought this habeas petition. And um, that's said by most people. That's said by uh, John you by Professor Fallon, by Professor Paulson, Farber, Judge Posner, and even a few historians. Uh, Professor White doesn't make exactly that point, but he comes very close to it. Um, that is not quite right, that standard narrative, because in fact there was no order to release Merriman. What there was was an, an opinion by Tony saying Merriman ought to have been released or should be released.
1: Let me stop but you right actually, there. Can I stop you right there for a moment? Please, go ahead. Um, let's back up just a second because I know many of our listeners will probably be familiar with the case, but let's give an introduction to the context in which this case arose and and then we can get to the uh the order itself and and what is the popular narrative of the impression of the case and what it means versus uh what you have uh, uncovered in in the story that you tell regarding it so this is right at the beginning of the civil war this is in 1861 and what's the uh do you do you want to elaborate on the background for how John Merriman even comes to the court's attention and to the military's attention Sure. I,
0: I, think that's, uh,
1: uh,
0: I think that's the uh, I think that's the right thing to do. Uh, we're past the election of 1860. Uh, Lincoln's been elected. Uh, he comes into the presidency. Um, a few weeks into the presidency, Fort Sumter has fallen. Lincoln calls up 75,000 volunteers. And the reason he puts forward for the volunteers to come is to defend the Capitol. Uh, secession has begun. And... Uh, As the volunteers in April 1861 are moving through Maryland, um, they are changing trains from one station in Maryland to another on their way to D.C., on their way to the capital, and there's a confrontation between the loyal American troops and a mob in Baltimore, and the standard view is that the the mob in Baltimore was throwing stones at them, and the the troops fired back, and uh, people died. and around this time, uh, there was a debate by the Maryland political establishment what the response ought to be, and uh, some of the elected political officials took the view that Maryland should sort of move into neutrality, and to be neutral, they wanted to make sure no further federal troops came through Maryland, and they burned some bridges and destroyed some telegraph lines. Of course, to, uh, to Lincoln and to his uh, administration, this looked like treason, this looked like a struction of the movement of, of troops through through Maryland. Uh, so in April 27, 1861, uh, Lincoln issues an order to Winfield Scott, and he gives Scott discretion, and Scott also has discretion to subdelegate this discretion, to suspend habeas corpus along the areas of troop movements. Uh, and this is this is extremely controversial uh, because Lincoln took it on his own authority unilaterally. Uh, to give the army discretion to spend habeas corpus. So May 25th, a couple of weeks later, 1861, uh, some army officers at 2 a.m. come into Merriman's home. They seize Merriman, who is a a landowner, um, fairly politically connected, uh, long established uh, Maryland family, Uh, uh, apparently because he was involved in at least one of the bridge burnings. There's no judicial process. There's no civilian process. They just seize him and they cart him off to Fort McHenry uh, in, in Maryland, uh, where he falls under the, uh, uh, the aegis of the uh, military district commander, a fellow named General Cadwalder. And this begins the process, at least the case, because Merriman's unhappy with his seizure. Um, two of the uh, one of one of Merriman's lawyers shows up at the army base. They they demand his lawyer asks to see the commandant Cadwalder uh, to find out what the reason for the arrest. Was was Cat Waller uh, won't produce any documents, and Merriman's two lawyers um, go down to Washington and meet with the Chief Justice of the United States and put, present him with a petition for habeas corpus, a document asking for a hearing uh, to put on the government some uh, duty to explain the detention. Uh, the next step is that uh, Tony, having received this paper, uh, this is this is now Sunday, May 26th, begins to move at a lightning pace. And, and he's a man in his 80s. It's really quite incredible how quickly things things proceed at this point. Um, Tony uh, signs the, the writ. He revises it slightly. He leaves Washington, goes up to Baltimore, tracks down on a Sunday the clerk of the circuit court of Maryland, a fellow named Spicer. Spicer sends the writ over to the U.S. Marshal. And by 5 p.m. on Sunday... Cadwallader, uh, who's the commander at uh, Fort McHenry, gets this document, which orders him to come to court uh, noon the next day on Monday, May 27th, and the order directs Kedwalder to do three things. It orders him to show up, it orders him to bring Merriman with him, to produce Merriman, and it orders him to give the reasons for his detention, to explain the legal basis for Merriman's detention. Come the next day, on May 27th, uh, about 18 hours later, um, uh, Kedwalder does not show up at court. Kedwalder sends his aide-de-camp, his ADC, a fellow named Colonel Lee, and his aide-de-camp reads to Tawney into the court the reasons, as um, Kedwalder would put forth, for the seizure of Merriman, and does not produce Merriman. Merriman is not there with him. Uh, Tony, uh, and one thing Kedwalder asks for is, he asks for an extension, by the way, uh, purportedly the reason for the extension was Ked Walder has to coordinate his legal strategy, not just on his own, but with army law officers, with the president of the United States. And he also has to consider his own legal position because Ked Walder, in fact, was the defendant, the named defendant in the lawsuit, which is really quite important. He faces the risk of legal liability because he's the one who's actually jailing uh, uh, John Merriman. And if he doesn't have a good reason for it, he's at uh, some risk of liability. Uh, but Cat order doesn't show up and he doesn't produce Merriman and he doesn't get the extension he, he asks for either. And uh, perhaps one reason he doesn't get the extension is the way Tony probably saw it is that I'm not going to give an extension to a person who flouts my, my order. That is, he was ordered to show up with Merriman and he didn't. So in a certain sense it would have been difficult for um, Tony to have granted that order, uh, that request for an extension. Instead, on Monday, May 27th, Tony announces from the bench that he's going to issue what's called a writ of attachment. That is, he's going to start the process for holding Ken Walder in contempt for having violated the first order. Okay, so the contempt order is given over to the U.S. Marshal, and the U.S. Marshal, on the morning of May 28th, tries to serve that writ at the fort. So we're now two, two days later. It's now Wednesday. It's not actually the U.S. Marshal goes to the fort. It's a deputy U.S. Marshal, a fellow named Vance. And when Vance gets to the gate, he, he produces his card. The card is taken from him at the gate. And at this stage, we really don't know exactly what happens. All we know is the way Vance saw it, which is the card comes back, and the guard at the gate says to him, we will not admit you, basically. No reason is given. No explanation is given. Uh, and the Marshal doesn't try to bust his way into the fort, probably for very good pre- reasons and he proceeds back to the court so now it's Wednesday May 28th um, and Tony is in a situation where he doesn't have Merriman, he doesn't have Ketwalder, but there's no way to move forward with the case in the customary sense because in a customary habeas case you're going to have the petitioner in front of you and you're going to have the government so what what Tony does is now he issues from the bench a short oral opinion where he basically says the president lacks legal authority to unilaterally suspend habeas corpus, and therefore Merriman is entitled to be free. And this is the beginning of what I call the primary Merriman myth, because that's the part of the case everyone, or nearly everyone, remembers. The fact is that Tony has made this legal decision. He has said that Merriman is entitled to be free. No one frees Merriman in response to this, not Lincoln, not the army, not Cadwalder. uh This goes back to what I was saying before, because usually in a case, um, at the end of a a case, the way uh, a a civil action is governed, and habeas corpus is civil action, is there are two documents that are produced by a court. Um, In the old days, it might have been one common document, but the very last thing in the opinion would be something that says it is judged, it is decreed, it is decreed, it is ordered, that is an order. And unfortunately, even many lawyers don't quite uh, understand this concept. In American in the American legal system, orders are primary. Orders are the controlling document. Um, the order that followed ex parte merriman on May 28th merely was a directive to the clerk of the court, Spicer, to file the judge's decision and then to send the records of the decision to President Lincoln so that President Lincoln could take what action he thought best because Tony was telling the president of of what he saw, that is what Tony saw as the lawlessness by the army. But there was actually no order at the end of ex Partery Merriman directed towards Lincoln, directed towards the army, or even directed towards the named defendant, Ken Walter, to free John Merriman.
1: And so that's what you're you're, – just to highlight this point – you, the way you've structured your article is that essentially this is uh, a myth-busting article, and you, the first myth you want to address is the popular understanding that Tawney orders Lincoln to release Merriman. And, right. And your argument is specifically that that is um, not only technically wrong, but it leads to a misunderstanding of the actual nature of the conflict, if, if any— uh, conflict between the court and the executive branch
0: I, I, think, I think that's right uh, uh, think of the puzzlement Lincoln must have had when he received this file I assume he did receive it but it's not clear that he did it was sent to him at least we know that that he received a, a record of this case from uh, the clerk of the court uh, back in Maryland which basically Tony was saying there's a lot of government lawlessness going on Mr. President you look to it But there was no actual order telling Lincoln to release John Merriman. So one of the things that's commonly said about this case, and it's said frequently, is that Lincoln and Merriman acted lawlessly. He acted lawlessly because he didn't release John Merriman. And that isn't a mere technical thing. Uh, uh, When people violate court orders, they can be held in contempt. Uh, when people violate court orders, they're said to be acting lawlessness. It, it, when people don't listen to the rationale of an opinion, that isn't what we usually mean by lawlessness. That's that's something else of a whole different order. Uh, opinions are very useful things. Uh, they help us with regard to uh, predicting what a future uh, court will do. But usually we don't consider someone to be acting lawlessly because he is not following the spirit of a lengthy opinion that some judge wrote somewhere even if it's a Supreme Court opinion. And um, uh, I- indeed, there have been a few authors that, that have looked at this and said that really, one way of thinking about it is that Tony was sort of warning Lincoln, I'm, I'm sort of I'm giving you notice this time, you sort of acted lawlessly, maybe next time I'm actually going to issue this order. That's that's one way of thinking about it. Another way of thinking about it is perhaps what Tony was, was saying is that, you know, and and... I've sort of come to this since writing my article. Tony might have been saying what Justice Jackson was saying in the famous Korematsu case in World War II. There's a dissent by Jackson uh, in Korematsu, which is one of the uh, the Japanese internment cases, where Jackson says, these cases should never be in front of the courts because the only thing that happens is we defer to what the army has decided, and then some terrible legal principle that has no basis in law lies there like, in, uh, an unexploded bomb. And in, in a certain sense, I th- that's what Tony was saying here, which is that, you know, if there's going to be government lawlessness that applies during wartime, I'm not actually going to free Merriman, but the government now has to take all the political responsibility. Uh, that is, in a certain sense, Tony wasn't going to make a legal principle justifying what the army did, but in a certain sense, he was deferring to Lincoln and to the administration and what might be looked at as a purported emergency. So that's, that sort of spins Merriman 180 degrees on its head, where most people would say 20 was going out of his way to provoke the executive branch or to weaken them. Uh, I'm not really sure that that fits. As a matter of fact, there were contemporaneous courts that cited Merriman as pr- precedent at the time. One was the Southern District of New York, and the other was the Wisconsin Supreme Court, who basically said, when faced with other um, uh, detainee cases during the Civil War, uh, uh, it's all illegal, but we're not going to order the administration to release these people. And we and they signed Merriman. All right. Um, so I think one way of thinking about Merriman is that Tony was,
1: in a funny sort of way, doing exactly
0: what Judge Jackson said a judge should do during a national emergency, which is that – well, let me, it's not a national emergency, a purported emergency uh, uh, with regard to when the armed forces bring a claim before the courts which is that there's no reason to look at the evidence because the army isn't going to show us the evidence and the army often doesn't have evidence because the army is in the business of collecting evidence such cases don't belong to the courts in the first place if they come before us we have to announce the law for what it is uh but that doesn't mean we should interfere with the government's conduct of, of, of war making um, now that way of viewing Merriman is night and.
1: Day different from the standard narrative, right? Well, i'm sorry to interrupt you. Another point you make is that, uh, and it sounds like a minor throwaway technicality, but for lawyers and judges in any time period in American history, this probably would have been a a, a true point of jurisdictional uh, propriety, which is even if there had been an order to release, the order would not have been directed to the executive branch, or I should say to the president, but rather to the commanding general in the jail or the the confinement.
0: I I, I think that's right. Uh, I don't think that that's one of the primary myths, though, about the case.
1: Uh, What I could do is I could run
0: through each one of the myths with you uh, one after another. Uh, But before I I do that, I was wondering if I could just sort of go back to – Uh, to my introduction where I first sort of explained um, how I came to write this paper. Sure. There there was one other reason I I came to write this paper, which is that one of the things you find when you read this case is that all sorts of details about it, um, not just the, the major story points of the case, but all sorts of very minor details about it, like the date and the names of the characters and where certain events have taken place, are systematically misreported. And one of the reasons they're misreported is because the events happened so very quickly. I mean, one of the problems with this case is Merriman isn't really one case. Merriman is really three different hearings on three different days. Each one ended with its own separate order. Merriman was the case on May 25th when the ex parte order was issued. Merriman was the hearing on May 26th when the aide-de-camp showed up, which uh, uh, ended with an order uh, for attachment, and Merriman was the May 27th uh, uh, decision, um, sorry, May 26, May 27th, and May 28th, the May 28th decision where uh, Tawney announced his famous decision on habeas corpus. If you read the literature, the dates of these events are often conflated because I would say part of the problem of reading Merriman is that the skill set of the people who usually talk about legal history law and history generally is a skill set with reading supreme court opinions and the skill set for reading supreme court opinions is very different with the skill set for reading a trial court opinion merriman was not a decision of the supreme court of the united states merriman was a decision of one us supreme court justice the chief justice sitting alone and for what court he did that for is something that's contested to this day it's itself its own side issue but uh, a trial court, the, the events are happening very quickly. Uh, they're more free-flowing, the, the, the case isn't defined. It's different from an appellate case where there's a full trial or a full hearing below, a full record, it's argued on appeal at one level, and then it goes to the Supreme Court for the most narrow point of law that the court says in advance it wants hurt. With Merriman, everything was sort of open, it was a trial court decision. And there's a a difference in the skill set for reading a trial court decision than there is for a Supreme Court decision on a narrow point of law. And I think that's one of the reasons there's been so much confusion on this case. Uh, 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 Another reason I think that this case has been uh, difficult to read is that, and I've alluded to this before, is people to this day disagree with what court actually heard the case. And that's added its own level of confusion. That is, some people have written that this case was heard by the circuit court of Maryland. And probably the reason most people have said that is because that's where the decision was filed. That's where Tawney left the paper that became ex parte Maryland. But the other view of the case is that this wasn't heard by the circuit court of Maryland. This, this case was heard by Chief Justice Tony on special authority given by the judiciary. Act of 1789. This was, this was what was called an in-chambers case. And there are even people who say, and there are two outlier opinions, that Tony was acting for, as a district court judge, and even the, the Supreme Court heard it. And of course, the latter one doesn't make any sense at all. And that adds a whole level of confusion uh, to this case. Um, so two other points I think are, 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 are worth thinking about. One is that this case was not a case for money damages. This case was a case that was heard in equity for an injunction. It was heard for an order. That is what what the petitioner was looking for was a court order directing his being released. And to tell you the truth, again, that's a skill set that I think few judges, um, excuse me, few academics on the law history side really have, because most of the cases that are read today, particularly appellate cases, are cases that are either in criminal law or disputes about money damages. Equity is... It's a specialty. And I think that's one reason I was sensitive to some of, this, some of the issues in this paper, is because I, I practice in the court of Chancery in Delaware, uh, where matters are equitable matters. Uh, and a lot of the work I did was work related to uh, preliminary injunctions and injunctions um, at the end of a decision on the merits. And another reason this case is difficult to, uh, to understand or has been difficult to understand is that Habeas itself has a certain unique aspects. The most important one is that usually a lawsuit, a civil lawsuit, is a a suit between equals. But one of the unique oddities of habeas is that the person seeking habeas is in the control of the defendant. That is, his body, his very person, has to be sort of pulled out of detainment in order to get the, the proceedings going. Uh, and that made for, I think, one of the uh, uh, important legal difficulties of this case because what Cadwalder what opposed was taking uh, uh, the prisoner, taking John Merriman, out of confines to begin the actual legal process to adjudicate this case. That is, the normal process of hearing habeas sort of requires that the prisoner be brought forward, where from Cadwalder's point of view, that's what the case was about. For him to do that is sort of to give up the game or to throw in the towel at the very beginning of the dispute. So it's no real surprise that Ken Walder, at least initially, didn't obey 20's order to produce Merriman. And finally, I think there's one other reason this case um, has led to a lot of confusion. Um, and I, I, I think I wasn't sensitive to it at first. But a lot of our own personal views of American nationalism, American Identity and American ethnicity are are really bound up with very strong feelings about the Civil War, even to this day, and uh, I find it absolutely remarkable um, that, that you will find very credible historians, judges, legal academics who will refer to Merriman as a Confederate as, as if he had actually crossed lines into the South and joined the Confederate military. I mean, real hyperbole is used in this case that has led to a lot of confusion. Um, so Merriman really does pose a challenge to read, and that challenge, of course, starts with the main the main primary myth, which is the one I went over, which is that there was no order to release John Merriman. Um, so now let me, uh, if, if I can, segue into some of the other myths. Sure. Um, all right. So, so another myth, which is sort of a, a way of rephrasing the first one, is that, okay, let's say we concede that there was no order uh, to release John Merriman. Uh, the, the backup position, a lot of people will say, is that, okay, so what? There was still this opinion. Tony said the law of the land is that the army just can't arrest people and throw them in jail. There has to be civilian process. There has to be the usual civilian oversight. That's what the opinion said. Shouldn't Lincoln have, in some sense, been obedient uh, to that order? Uh, I'm mean, sorry, not to the order, but, but to the opinion uh, that, uh, uh, that 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 uh, was announced. And there, there are some good prudential reasons to take that argument. Uh, following uh, opinions is good comedy between the, the elected branch and the judiciary, at least to predictability in the law, and there's good reasons for self-interest uh, for, judge, uh, for, for uh, litigants to obey opinions, uh, because if you obey an opinion, it's likely if your action is contested, you could say, look, I, I was meeting the aspirational goal of, of the legal system. The problem for that view is that on the facts of Merriman, it must have been very confusing uh, for Lincoln to have picked up the opinion and to have looked at the order and said, What is the law of this case? That is, he doesn't know what court issued the opinion. He doesn't know if the court had jurisdiction. He already knows that Tawney isn't going to order him uh, to release the person. Uh, it's certainly not precedential if it was uh, one judge acting alone uh, by a Chambers' opinion. Uh, the the usual reasons for following an opinion simply aren't strong in Merriman. Uh, the usual reasons for following an opinion outside of an order don't make a lot of sense here. Uh, it's uh, In other words, it, the, the criticism here is that Lincoln should have allowed the opinion to govern his relationship with his subordinates. Uh, and it, it's hard to... It's hard to make out what the basis of that view is other than the fact that many people have assumed there was an order behind that opinion. But once you see that there was no order, the idea that Lincoln or the army or Ken should have just uh, presumed to have followed what Tony thought uh, was the law on this case doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, it would have been very hard for a legal advisor to have come to Lincoln and said, given that the order doesn't demand obedience, you should you should sort of uh, apply the aspirational goal of, of the law as it applies here. Uh, that's just not the way our legal system usually works. Um, as a matter of fact, you see this debated today uh, with regard to when there are conflicting circuit court opinions from the federal courts, let's say the First Circuit and the Tenth Circuit or the Fifth Circuit and the Third, different views of, of the law, what should the executive branch do? Uh, should, should the executive branch adopt the position of one circuit to the detriment of the other? Should it wait in for, for Supreme Court review to rectify it? Should it take its own opinion? Should it apply uh, the different opinions in different geographic regions of the United States? And then is it free to make up its own mind with regard to parts of the United States where there is no circuit court opinion? Well, what we have here in Merriman is sort of uh, uh, a, an intellectual black hole where there are people who look at the history and say Lincoln and the army did something wrong, but it's very hard to put your finger exactly on what that wrong was given that all we have was sort of a pronunciamento, an analysis of the the legal view uh, of what the law should be uh, uh, from 20 without any confirmatory order demanding compliance. So I I think that's the second myth, the second myth that, that there was this wrong here in the government, the administration, and Lincoln not being a, be into the opinion, even separate from the order. That's the second one. Now, the third myth, and I would say it's my favorite, um, speaking as a lawyer, is the appeal myth. Um, you'll see in the literature that um, people, there are historians, there are academics, there are uh, law professors who will say Lincoln's big mistake was he should have appealed the ex parte decision. Uh, that is, once he lost, so to speak, in front of Tony, Ken Waller, the Army or Lincoln, should have tried to get the whole Supreme Court to hear it. And what's very strange about uh, this particular view is that Rehnquist, Chief Justice Rehnquist, wrote a book uh, on Civil War, uh, wartime, uh, the wartime experience and and law during the Civil War called uh, All all the the Laws But One. And in sort of a a parenthetical, Rehnquist says, without any explanations, there were procedural obstacles to appealing ex parte merriment, but he doesn't explain what they were, and, and I, think, I, I think I understand what he meant. If ex parte merriment was an in-chamber's decision, and, and I'm actually of the school that thinks that's correct, that it wasn't a circuit court decision. If it were an in-chamber's, if it had been an in-chamber's opinion, there was no route to appeal to the Supreme Court. Um, to appeal to the Supreme Court would have required a statute that gave the Supreme Court review. And there was no such statute. As a matter of fact, there's an 1847 decision called Metzger, which basically says that, that you can't appeal a decision of one justice acting alone um, uh, in chambers. Uh, by the way, as a historical point, that, that's worth mentioning. Today, what we mean by in chambers means something very different from what it meant in the 19th century. And that's what another good example of anachronistic thinking that when people say today Merriman was an in chambers decision or not, they're often thinking what it means today. To, Today, an in chambers decision is usually a motion before a single supreme court justice when a decision is on its way up to supreme court review that is it is not uncommon that the facts on the ground are changing during the review process going to the supreme court so one of the parties needs some sort of freezing order to freeze the status quo and a decision on a temporary motion will be heard in chambers in in the eighteen sixties under the judiciary act what was meant by in chambers was a special authority granted to a Supreme Court justice that he could make a decision on a motion that had nothing to do with the decision ultimately going to the Supreme Court. So, if it were an in-chamber's decision, there was no route to appeal to the Supreme Court. On the other hand, if it were a circuit court decision, which quite a few people think it was, there was still no route to appeal. And this is one of the oddities of the case of Ex parte Marion. In order to take an appeal um, in the American legal system, you have to be a loser. Winners don't get the right to appeal. That is, you're not allowed to appeal a case if you've already won in the lower court. As strange as it sounds, the the party that lost ex-partary Merriman in front of 20 was John Merriman because there was no order uh, um, uh, allowing him to be freed. In that sense, he lost and only he could take an appeal. Lincoln never had an opportunity to take an appeal, no matter what court actually heard ex-partary... Merriman. So the view that somehow Lincoln did something wrong by not appealing the case, under the assumption he had lost the blow, really, really is quite wide of the mark. Um, it's, it is. And what's amazing is the diversity of people who've, who've made this criticism. Justice Breyer. Uh, is an example of a person who's made this criticism of of Lincoln. Professor Bruff, Professor Fallon, Paulson, and uh, uh, an author named DeLorenzo. Just a wide group of scholars. Uh, And and you have to ask yourself why, and I think this goes back in part to what I said before, that is, there are very, very deeply held views about the Civil War and and today what it means to be an American and, and loyalty and also very deep held views about the way the American legal system to works. Today we think of almost any case as appealable uh, to the Supreme Court, and for some reason you know, the, the common rules of appellate decision making, that is, the common understanding of getting an appeal to the Supreme Court is you need a statute. Uh, all the people that say an appeal could be taken never seem to ask the question, what is that statute that would have permitted that appeal, or how could the non-prevailing party uh, or the prevailing party get an appeal. Uh, that is, there has to be some recognition of who actually won the case. So uh, again, the, the appeal myth, I think, is, is one that, that's deeply telling uh, for how this story has been told. Uh, so, the, so those are the three – right, oh, go, go ahead.
1: As I was going to note, uh, as you were starting to indicate, um, the, these are the three big myths. Uh, number one, that Lincoln really does not ignore an order because there is no right. order uh, to Lincoln – and there's no order to release Merriman, and so there's nothing for Lincoln to essentially ignore in that regard, and there's no – imp- uh, I'm sorry? Or
0: uh, the, the language of ignore or defy
1: is usually used. That is, the, the criticism of Lincoln
0: is sometimes expressed that he ignored tawny, and sometimes it's expressed that he defied tawny. But either way, if, if there was no order, he couldn't have ignored it, and he couldn't have
1: defied it. Right, and so there's no actual conflict in terms of any constitutional uh, problem between the executive and the judiciary in this regard. And then the second myth being that there's also no um, act of ignoring Tawney's opinion um, right. as, as distinguished from an order. Um, exactly so. And then the third, of course, that Lincoln could not have appealed the decision because, number one, uh, there's a question of what court is actually acting uh, but or what kind of entity is acting uh, in the sense of whether this is an in-chambers decision or something of the Maryland Circuit Court. And it, regardless of what court is acting, the... Losing party is the only party that gets to appeal, and it was Merriman who lost. So Lincoln or the executive or Cadwallader at the um, the prison or at the um, at the Fort McHenry, he, he, neither of these uh, has any jurisdiction to take an appeal under existing law. Now, now some, people, some people would try to make a throwback position. They'd say, okay. So there was no final order to release Merriman, but there was the old initial
0: order. There was the order that started the case, the ex parte order from the very first day of the case that said to produce Merriman. Why wasn't there some obedience to that order? Now, that that there's some weight to that, but <clears throat> that order was for obedience only on May 26, 1861. That was the only day that order could have been complied with. And once May 26, 1861 ended, Tawney changed the nature of the suit from a suit about the merits of Merriman's release to one with regard to contempt for Kidwalder. That is, when, when the second stage of Merriman began, when we went from May 25, 1861 to May 26, 1861, um, Tony 20 did not re-up, he did not order a second time Walder to produce Merriman. All Tony did was order Ken Walder to come to the base, so that the to come to the court, so that the contempt order, the attachment order, could be heard and adjudicated. So we, there was some government lawlessness here, in the sense there was the initial order uh, to produce John Merriman, and that order was not obeyed. But that takes us to the second set of, of Merriman myths, and these were myths about Ken Walder's compliance uh, with regard to the court orders as opposed to Lincoln's. And so the way I put it is that there are four more myths. Uh, and these myths uh, relate more to, as I said, to Cadwalder, uh, the general, uh, than they do to Lincoln. And, and the first one was that Cadwalder uh, acted lawlessly by not showing up uh, for the first day's hearing. Um, and that, that was Monday, May 27th. He received the order at 5 p.m. on May uh, 26th, uh, Sunday, and that May 26th order directed him to show up. He did not show up. He sent his aide to camp, uh, a fellow named uh, Colonel Lee, as far as I know, uh, no relation to Robert E. Lee, just Mother Lee. And uh, you will see uh, 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 the literature faulting Cadwalder for not obeying this part of the order for not showing up. Uh, but the thing of it is, is when you look at the attachment order, where Tony complains about Ken Walter's conduct, he doesn't actually cite Ken Walder for not showing up. He only cites Ken Walder for not producing merriment. And I think that fits, to tell you the truth. Uh, this is a civil suit. In a civil suit, you, uh, usually the defendant does not have to show up, even if he's told to show up. He did send, not counsel, but he did send his representative, his aide de camp. And Tony sort of respects the fact that it is if not a national emergency, uh, that Cadwalder only had had 17 hours' notice, Uh, there doesn't seem to be any complaint on Tony's part that uh, Cadwalder wasn't there in his own person. Uh, So part of the myth here is, is that
1: there is this complaint in the literature that Cadwalder was
0: frustrating or provoking or acting lawlessly by not showing up, and I don't think the record would support that, as a matter of fact, today, with regard to habeas practice, which is mostly the practice with regard to prisons, the d- the defendant in any such habeas litigation is going to be the prison warden. Prison wardens almost never show up for habeas practice in the United States today. Their lawyer shows up, uh, in part because they have nothing to, to add to the litigation, they are only nominally, in the most nominal sense, the defendant. It's, it's usually the state or the federal government that's the real defendant. So I would say the first Cadwalder myth is that he didn't do anything wrong by not showing up. The second Cadwalder myth is really much more important, and we've already talked about it a little, which is that Cadwalder was faced with this initial ex parte order. This was the order that was issued on on Sunday, May 26th, and it directed him on May 27th to produce Merriman at the start of the proceedings. And he did not show up, and he did not show up with Merriman, and it is fair to ask: Is this army lawlessness? And uh, was was Ken Walder ignoring or defying the courts here? And there's an argument for that, but there's also an argument on the other side. And uh, perhaps in my article, I was too quick to call this a myth. When really, what I might have should have said is that there is another way of looking at it uh, that we can have a fuller debate. But I would say this is the argument for the other side, this is Cadwalder's argument. Cadwalder had 17 hours to comply with Tawney's order in the middle of a civil war. He needed time to coordinate his legal strategy to find a lawyer himself, because he personally was liable for wrongdoing, that's the way the law worked at the time and he needed to coordinate his legal strategy with the government law officers, uh, law officers like the Attorney General and the Army's law officers. He didn't have an opportunity to do that, and he did ask for a postponement. Now, that is not an excuse for acting lawlessly, the fact that you are put in a, a hard place by a judge. Judges have to be obeyed. That's sort of the first rule of law. Uh, but I, I think another way of looking at what Ken Waller was doing was, was basically this. If Ken walder had produced merriman at the beginning of that action on may 27 1861 then even if he had won the lawsuit he would have lost that is cat walder didn't know that ultimately Tawney was going to reject his defense at the end of the case he was hoping he was going to win at least as far as we know he was hoping he was going to win he, he thought he had some arguments on the merits or at least be a reason to believe that if he had produced a uh, merriman at the beginning then even if he had won the case, the precedent at that point would stand for that the army or the commanding general has to comply with the ex parte parte order because the facts would have changed and any result otherwise in a decision from Tony, even if it had gone Kedwalder's way, would just be dictated at that point. What Kedwalder needed to do from his point of view was to disobey the order, was to have his argument put on the record
1: and to have Tony
0: before ordering him to produce Merriman a second time, at least to hear his point of view, so that the ex parte order itself could be contested. Now, that's a lot to swallow, and that's a lot to take in, but that is in fact fairly common practice today with regard to what are called temporary restraining orders and preliminary injunctions. That is, it's not uncommon today for one party to come into court and say, Your Honor, I need an ex parte order. I don't have time or the opportunity to bring my opponent here yet, or I need to get the jump on them because they're dishonest. There are orders like that that are to be had, particularly in the rest of the uh, English-speaking world. There are orders, for example, like Mareva orders, and we have orders in the United States like them, I believe, under the Lanham Act, where one party will come into court and say, Your Honor, I want the court's blessing to get the jump on my opponent. I don't want you to hear their, their side yet. I just want the ex parte order to be issued because I have these very good reasons. Now, if a party gets an order like that, when the petitioner goes to the defendant and says, look, I got this court order, now you have to comply, the, the other side is between a rock and a hard place. They could comply with the order, which sort of means giving in, in a sense, or they could object to it and say, I'm not going to give in, I want to go right back to court, and now I want to represent myself. What Ken Walder, in a certain sense, was doing was he was saying, National emergency like this, where the government has purportedly suspended habeas corpus, or at least I think they have because there was no ruling yet that Lincoln didn't have that authority. Before a judge could issue an order like this, he has to hear the army side first. It doesn't make sense to comply with the order because if I comply with this order, I'll have to comply next time and we'll never get the matter heard with regard to whether a judge could issue an ex parte order in wartime to produce a prisoner under these facts. So, one way of thinking about this is that Cadwalder eventually lost on the merits. But losing on the merits is not the same thing as defiance. And this is the way Cadwalder's conduct is frequently represented in the literature that Cadwalder ignored the ex parte order, or he defied the ex parte order. And I think the better way to put it is that given that only Merriman's argument was in front of the judge, what Ken Walder was doing is he was saying before I obey this order or before the government is put to obeying this order, the judge has to hear my side first. And that's why he didn't produce John Merriman on the first day of the proceeding. Now you might ask, why didn't he produce him on the second day of the proceeding once he lost? That is, once Tony confirmed that his argument on the merits didn't work. And the answer to that has to be in part because... Tony never ordered him the second day to produce John Merriman. Now, Tony also claimed that my second order wouldn't have been respected, but we'll never know that. We'll never know whether the army would have complied with an order to release John Merriman had that order been issued after uh, Cadwalder's arguments were rejected. But but Cadwalder's unwillingness to produce Merriman at the beginning of the proceeding was, I have to say, common practice with regard to how what are called temporary restraining orders or preliminary injunctions are tried even today, and certainly back then, which is that you don't throw in the towel at the beginning because your side of the argument hasn't been heard yet. If you think you have a meritorious case, you disobey the order and you risk losing the case because you might win the case, but the only way to find out is to disobey the order at the first juncture. That's my argument that there's a second Kedwalder method. It's unfair to say Cadwalder defied the court the first day, by not producing John Merriman. That re- to make that argument understood, you have to know, I hope I persuaded some people who are listening to it, uh, but you also have to stand, understand a little bit about the pr- practice of injunctions. That is, the way TROs, temporary restraining orders, and preliminary injunctions are sought for. And again, one of the oddities about ex Merriman is that th- this very first order at the beginning of the case was, no surprise here, ex parte. The only people who had been in front of 20 were Merriman's lawyers, not the government's. The government very well could have been of the view, King Walter could have been of the view, I, I think he was actually, that he couldn't produce Merriman, at least at the opening stage. If he did, it was throwing in the towel. Uh, you might think about this in the context of World War II also. Imagine what would have happened if of the anywhere between, you know, 400,000, 600,000 allied prison, uh, Axis prisoners in the United States during World War II, they all asked for a of habeas corpus the same day. Do they all get an ex parte motion demanding that the government produce them in court? Um, there, there, there comes a limit to even ex parte motion practice where the government gets a chance to make its case, but in order to do that it has to risk disobeying the law, at least as established at the opening round in, in the ex parte order.
1: And a point that you make in the article is that if there had been a production of the body, that is, if Merriman had been brought from the fort to the court, then that might have been construed at that time as a waiver of Cadwallader or the military's um, objection to having to produce?
0: I I think waivers – not the actual language I use. I think it's a little too small uh, – strong. I, I think the way to think of it is this. Cadwalder might have been of the view, and I suspect he was, that even if he reserved the point, even if he said, I'm not waving," if Cadwalder at that point had won the lawsuit, if Twenty said, you know what, uh, Mr. General Cadwalder, you're right, the governor has the right to keep this person in jail, that order at that point, had he gotten it, it wouldn't have been any good, because he would have produced him, it would have been all dicta. That is, in order for the government to have been vindicated, they needed to leave the facts unchained so that the order would have vindicate the actual facts on the ground rather than a hypothetical set of facts that weren't, in fact, in existence. That would have been it – would, it would, it, it, I wouldn't say it would have operated as waiver, but it just would have meant the very next time such an order was issued by any any judge in the United States,
1: Ted Walter and the next general couldn't turn around and say, look, I want an ex parte merryman because the judge would have said, no, no, there was production there, so you have to produce also. Maybe there's also a practical. this is speculative, but maybe'm sorry I, I said maybe there's also a practical concern this is speculative, but perhaps uh, if Cadwallader's men had um, taken Merriman to the court and the court decides to issue an order right then to release him, all of a sudden they're outnumbered just like the deputy had been when he went to the fort a few days later. There's, in other words, uh, you have a practical concern of if you show up with the guy and you plan on keeping him in defiance of any potential order, you can't really effectuate that intention. Oh, no, no, no. That,
0: that, that practical concern is, is, is absolutely true, which is the idea that uh, all of a sudden instead of having the whole fort on your side, you you would have been uh, outnumbered by anyone that the judge had put into the control of the uh, of the marshal or the marshal himself. Uh yeah, that, that certainly could have been on Ken Walder's mind. Uh, that certainly would have been a, a very uh, practical and very real concern. But, of course, thinking about it that way, we're assuming that Ken Walder was prepared uh, and thinking in terms of, should he disobey a court order if he actually got one? We'll never know the answer to that. That is, it might have been that Ken Walder was of the view,
1: if I get a court order to do it,
0: I'm going to do it we'll never know if he would have obeyed that order because it actually never came to that it, it wasn't that, that uh, which of course goes back to the first point i made which is that the primary myth about merriman is that there was government lawlessness here that the army or cabal or lincoln disobeyed a court order and uh the, the record just doesn't bear that out uh, at least on the facts of merriman that doesn't mean there weren't times <laughs> during the civil war where judges uh, issue orders that weren't obeyed, uh, but I don't think really it makes sense to say that about Merriman itself. Um, so there, there are two more um, this about uh, the Merriman case that, that also go to Ken Walder. Uh, I think they're sort of, you know, worth uh, throwing into the pot. Uh, one is that when the, the, the attachment order was issued uh, by, um, by Tawney, U.S. Marshal on May 28th that morning was was sent to the fort and he was turned away. There are a few historians who say he was turned away because Kedwalder directed the the, the soldiers at the gate to turn him away. But I found absolutely no sources expressing in fact where Kedwalder was that morning. Um, As far as I can tell, we don't have any firm records explaining the events at the gate where the Marshal was turned back. And this is important, by the way, it's important because Tawney, in his final opinion, the famous habeas opinion, says that the reason he won't issue the order is because he suspects there would be a violent confrontation between Marshall and, and the uh, army. and The army has, I think was the phrase, uh, Tawney was notoriously superior to firepower. So as a matter of discretion, as a matter of prudence, Tawney doesn't issue the order, at least that's what he says. The, the problem with that is, is, is that
1: Tony has no way of knowing
0: that anyone at the gate would object to the marshal coming on onto the premises of the fort. He only knows that the marshal was turned away. Uh, the marshal could have been turned away by mistake. Um, uh, uh, the marshal could have been turned away by determination of a lower officer. Perhaps he just didn't know what to do. It doesn't mean that there was a plan Uh, to frustrate the the, uh, performance of the writ or the service of the writ. Uh, As a matter of fact, there's probably some good reason to think that Walter wasn't at the fort or was not involved, because there was this order from from army command, not from Lincoln, mind you, but from uh, an adjutant general, that said, if you get an order like this, if you get a writ like this, respond to it respectfully, but don't produce the prisoner. the, the 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 soldiers at the gate who sent the marshal away did not give a written response and did not respond respectively to the writ. And that that leads me to believe that this outstanding army order uh, was really never in possession of the people at the fort. And it also leads me to suspect that it wasn't Ken Walter who was responding. Uh, but But the bigger myth is that... Several historians have suggested that Ken was sort of manipulating these events or controlling these events. That is, Kedwalder made the determination to send the uh, marshal away. And there just doesn't seem to be any actual record of that. Um, So I would say that's the myth. And the last myth, and, you know, perhaps it's the most important one. I I didn't feel that way initially when I wrote the article, but maybe now looking back, I I look at it slightly differently, was... um, the view that Cadwalder, when he disobeyed the initial production order, or perhaps when he sent the marshal away from the fort, if you, for those people who believe that, or for perhaps just in general, uh, uh, the army and Cadwalder, and, and even the initial arrest of, of Merriman, all, all this purports to be government lawlessness in a certain sense, uh, that is, the, the, the army taking decisions that are usually le- le- left to civilians, that all this stuff was either authorized previously by Lincoln or ratified subsequently. That, that, in a certain sense, that is part of the Merriman myth, that, that even if Kidwalder wasn't doing this on his own, uh, it was the army, and the army had authority to do this from Lincoln. And uh, there, are, there, are three, <clears throat> there are three documents that people will point to, uh, to, to support that view. Uh, but before I, I look at those discuss those three documents with you, right, I I think part of the problem here is that a piece of the big picture is missing. That is, the way Merriman is taught in the standard narrative, is that this was a conflict between the judiciary and the president, and the the, the actual face-off was not Tawny and Lincoln, but it was actually the marshal who had the court's writ in his hand. And the army at Fort McKenney. that that was that was where push came to shove. If if you believe this standard narrative of the Great conflict. that is, the marshal worked for the courts and the army worked for the president. The problem with that standard narrative is it's not true. The marshal also works for the president. The marshal's office is part of the executive branch. Do you, you understand my point?
1: Sure. So
0: so so if if you believe that Lincoln was trying to engineer or or to frustrate the court. That is, if if you're a part, believe the narrative that Lincoln was sort of behind government lawlessness at the time of ex parte That is, he either he was authorizing Kepaulner and the army not to listen to the courts. Then the way he went about it was crazy. All Lincoln had to do was send a telegraph to the marshal's office and said, if you get any writs, don't serve them. And at that point, there would be no legally enforceable document directing the uh, the uh, army to do anything. That is, in order to make the standard narrative work, you have to assume that Lincoln didn't just want to avoid conflict or didn't just want to stop uh, the courts, but he would do it in the most obtrusive way, fashionable. That is, he could have stopped Tawney's order from having any effect simply by telling the marshal never to serve it. Why would he tell the, the army, hide behind the gate at the fort and create national headlines looking like you're disobedient, when all he had to do was tell Tony, sir, yourself, and that won't have a It's the difference here between night and day. That is, The standard narrative, in order to make its story work, has to basically say that Lincoln, on his own, was arranging a conflict between two groups of officials, both of whom work for him. That That is, that is Tony is saying, look, there's this Cromwellian conflict between the judiciary representing the people and their civil liberties and the army with superior firepower. If, if, if Lincoln was trying to stop that Cromwellian conflict from blowing up in newspapers and blowing up in his face, all he had to do was say, don't serve the writ and there will be no conflict. That, that never happened. Um, and that, Now, one reason that never happened could have been Lincoln had never thought about it uh, at least in those terms, but but it may be that the reason it never happened is there was no such conflict. That is, what happened at the gate was just completely fortuitous. And to this day, I don't think we really know what ha- what happened at the gate. Why why the uh, marshal wasn't admitted? Um, was was it an accident? Was it a policy of the army? Uh, was it a low-level official? Was it Kimballer himself? It's all it's all wrapped up in 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 enigma in history in in, in, in un, you know real unknowns. We don't know. Who sent the marshal away? And, so we do when have, we come
1: back to the, I'm sorry, we do have in May yeah, huh? though, May 28th, we have this um, command or order from the Attorney General to uh, Townsend. Army headquarters. Yeah, yeah he's, he's an adjutant General. He's a he's he's a he's, a, he's a, a senior Army law officer, and and that's
0: one of the three documents people point to to say, look, this is government lawlessness, and, and we do have that document. But the interesting thing about that document is it's dated May 28th. Yeah. Right? In other words, it's dated the very last day of the two-day Merriman hearing, right?
1: Right, right.
0: So so the the problem is that if that order was drafted after 12 noon, then the marshal had already been sent away from the fort. Even if that order was drafted before 12 noon, do I know that it got to Ken Walder or that it got to anyone at the fort to read it? Let let me me mention to to the listener again what this order said. This was an order from a law officer, a seat law officer of the army, uh, telling um, um, uh, Kimballer: should you get a, a writ from any court, obviously referring to Tony, uh, directing you to produce or release prisoners, you know, seeking habeas, respectfully decline, say when these unfortunate matters are at an end, you will comply, but not right now. Uh, now. The, the first point you want to know about that is that, as I said, it was on May 28th. We don't know that it was in Cadwalder's hands at the time the marshal showed up. Uh, it might have come into Cadwalder's hands later, or it might never reach Cadwalder's hands. I don't know if any information to think this order ever reached Cadwalder. It might have been the normal course of events, but I, I don't know that it ever did. And I certainly don't know that it reached Cadwalder prior to the time the marshal was there, because both events happened on May 28th. But probably the more important point about this document is, if this document is from the army all right it doesn't purport to be acting under delegated authority from president lincoln it's certainly an interpretation of uh, the prior authority lincoln had given uh to suspend habeas but lincoln never precisely explains what that means and i, I think this is another area of confusion that happens in this case when, when you The the principle uh, that's going on here is an interpretation of the clause in the Constitution that talks about the suspension of habeas corpus. What does that mean? Now, one way of thinking about the suspension of habeas corpus is it's a directive to the courts. Don't issue this sort of remedy for whatever period of time it's been stripped from you. That is, one way of thinking about the suspension of habeas corpus is it's a directive or instruction or it's a statute telling the courts what to do. Another way of thinking about the suspension of habeas corpus is it's a directive to the executive branch, telling them it doesn't matter what the courts have decided. You're instructed under this higher constitutional authority, whatever the court's saying, not to release prisoners independent of uh, what the courts have said. Two different, two different ways of thinking about it. Lincoln gave the army previously, back in April 1861, authority, limited authority, to suspend habeas corpus in the area of troop movements. But he never told the army. By the way, if the courts tell you otherwise, don't listen. All right. Uh, now that might seem like you know, uh, um, uh,
1: you know, some fanciful
0: distinction of a lawyer, but that's exactly what Tony says in his decision. Tony, in his written decision on the habeas corpus, says uh, on the case says, "I'm not exactly sure what Lincoln had in mind." Uh, by this, and it may be Cadwalder has gone beyond his actual authority here. Tony, in his own decision, distinguishes um, uh, the suspension of habeas corpus, which seems to me, in Tony's mind, the executive branch complying uh, uh, with, with court orders, from the initial seizure of people uh, without uh, judicial authority under the normal uh, forms of law. Um, so, Part, part of this Merriman myth um, is the idea um, is the idea that Lincoln authorized uh, Ked Walder not to obey. But Lincoln used very ambiguous language uh, in his initial April um, uh, 27th order. Uh, and it may be that the full scope of that language was just to authorize initial seizure of people without the usual forms of law. As opposed to a more wide-ranging authority also telling people, also telling army officers that uh, they could ignore court orders. We don't know. We only know what Lincoln wrote. The army, on the last day of the Merriman case, did have this order from Adjutant General Townsend saying ignore court orders. But we don't know that that order has its source in Lincoln. Um, And that's another one of uh, the Merriman myths. And probably the very last one is, and this one's sort of surprising: is on July Fourth, eighteen sixty-one, Lincoln has this famous response to Merryman, where he tries to justify what he has done and what the army has done to date, and he talks about "shall all the laws, uh, but one, uh, you know, go unexecuted," referring to the fact that if we let these ter- terrible prisoners go, as we saw, it will be. You're, you're, you're feeding the fires of secession of the Confederacy. You're making life easier for them. That is, the government has to be able to detain people in emergency even if they haven't uh, broken laws, or at least the government can't prove they've broken laws under the normal rules of evidence. That July 4th message to Congress couldn't have authorized what happened in Maryland because it happened a month later. That's the first way to think about it. And the second way to think about what Lincoln said was, even in his July 4th message, he never clearly comes out and says, by the way, I'm authorizing lawlessness in the sense of, I'm telling my subordinates they could ignore court orders. Uh, uh, there, there's no clarity there. Uh, and the usual you know rule of construction is that, you know, we don't assume that the executive branch is trying to keep the courts out. Unless there's some clear indication that's what they're trying to do. And even Tony at the time didn't seem to think that's what Lincoln was up to. Uh, which is in part, I think, one of the reasons he sent a full record of Merriman to Lincoln uh, to push on him some political responsibilities to, in fact, make him you know publicize exactly what what his policies were going to be here. Uh, so I suppose the, the 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 big message of Merriman might be that there are all these free-floating conceptions about it when it probably stands for a lot less than what many people think it stands for. Uh, In terms of the the law of habeas corpus, just about everything uh, that Tony said in was eventually put into the Milligan decision, uh, 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 which probably, after the war on terror cases, isn't really the law of the United States anymore anyway. Uh, I'd just like to close with one, I think, uh, interesting tidbit. Uh, about Merriman, which I think is lost on, on modern readers. 20 in discussing um, the power of the president uh, to suspend habeas corpus, this, this is the famous part of the Merriman decision, says only Congress can do it. Only Congress has the power to suspend habeas The president can't do it. Laterally. And uh, part of his support for that is that you know, the president doesn't have, doesn't have any power to interfere with the courts. This is a writ that's issued by courts. That means only Congress can do it. And th- that argument is 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 very sensible in in terms of understanding habeas corpus and the um, uh, the suspension of it as as an inhibition on what courts can do. But Tony has this other very interesting statement in it that sort of you know if you're a modern reader, the way I was when I came to Meriden, uh this sort of comes out of left field. He says. Even if Congress suspends habeas corpus, it can't do it today in Maryland. So, uh, Ian, there's one final point I'd like to make, and I, I think it's interesting and noteworthy. Merriman is famous for the habeas uh, decision. That's, that's the part most people who've studied this case know. It, it's famous for the fact that uh, Tony declared the law and said a president unilaterally on his own uh, cannot uh, suspend habeas corpus. And Tony gives uh, two reasons for that. Uh, one 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 reason is, he says, Habeas is a writ, uh, and the control of writs that courts issue are, are controlled by Congress and uh, that 's a sensible reason uh, Tony has this other reason uh, and this other reason for not issuing the writ, uh, which is that he 's afraid of uh, violent confrontation with the government with the army, and uh, for that reason he uses his discretion or at least so he says uh, not for issuing it. One of the oddities uh, about uh, this case is that there was a, an earlier case, not an American case, it was a, a case heard in the United Kingdom in 1798, it was actually heard in Ireland, which is actually you know, if you read it, it's almost word for word like Merriman. Only the names are different. Uh, uh, the general was not Walter, believe it or not it was General Kid Cornwalls, the famous general who was defeated at War- Yorktown um, in, in the American Revolution. And uh, there was an uprising in Ireland, uh, and a man was tried uh, by a military court uh, for treason. Uh, he was convicted, and he was back to be executed. And uh, his father gets a lawyer, and the lawyer comes into uh, the civilian court and gets the chief justice of Ireland to issue a writ of habeas corpus to produce the prisoner. Uh, and just like in Merriman, uh, the uh, the judge doesn't uh, doesn't doesn't. – I'm sorry, the, the general doesn't obey it. So instead of sending the marshal uh, with contempt order with an attachment to get the general, uh, uh, the the equivalent official in, in Ireland was the sheriff. So the the judge who was chief justice of Ireland and and kill warden sends the the sheriff to the uh, to the military base get get the prisoner and and bring the judge be, uh, bring the general before him, general Cornwallis. And what the court record actually says is that the judges were nervous. The civilian judges, they didn't know what was going to happen. Um, um, And just like in Merriman, something very unexpected happened. It seems the prisoner committed suicide. So we we never really found out whether the army would have obeyed, though the uh, the the, uh, the, the, the army officers who disobeyed the original ex parte order actually apologized after the fact to the court. And one of the, the great ironies of of Merriman is that Merriman is looked at as at this very valuable civil rights oriented case where the civilian courts stood up to the executive branch and I happen to think that 's wrong uh, i don 't think the courts or twenty stood up to the executive branch and i 'm not a twenty hater, but this myth that twenty acted heroically or courageously or by asserting the court 's jurisdiction. It's just not borne out. It's particularly not borne out by the fact that it was this very well-known British case called the Wolf Tone case from 1898, where the courts actually did stand up for civil rights because the, the Chief Justice of Ireland actually did issue a writ of habeas corpus and did direct the army to release the prisoner and actually did serve the contempt order. That is, they, the, the courts did everything in the, From what you might call the law and order perspective, the civil rights perspective, that we expect courts to do even during wartime, and you know, one of the interesting things about you know this whole uh, the whole Merriman incident is, Tony comes out of the courthouse steps and he says that I you know I I live my life you know to get to this day, thank God that I lived this long, and he tells uh, a visiting a. uh, British consul how much he expect, respects the common law, which has been inherited by America from England. But in this case, actually, he didn't obey the common law. He didn't follow the common law because the common law actually was to issue the writ and was to free the person and to risk a confrontation with the army. And this isn't some obscure case I'm talking about. Though, but this case was actually cited in Luther v. Borden, which was a very important American case that Tawney adjudicated. It was the Rhode Island Civil War case. It wasn't cited by Tawney, the Tone case from from Ireland. It was cited by uh, one of the dissenters. But it wasn't a case that that wouldn't have been known by Tawney. Tawney is is actually portrayed as being heroic. And I I would say the better way to portray Tawney and to think about what he did in Merriman was, and I don't mean this as an insult either, he wasn't heroic. He was very average. He was almost inconsequential. Um, and uh, the fact that Merriman occupies the American imagination, the American legal and historical imagination,
1: the way it does,
0: is a reflection in part about how little we today know or think about these military law cases, because military law is so different. It's from such a different world that we don't know how much of a departure Merriman was, Merriman was from what other courts have been willing to do. Uh, in wartime. And to me, that's probably the biggest myth of all about Merriman.
1: The article is Ex parte Merriman, Myth, History, and Scholarship. And we've been joined today by Seth Barrett Tillman, the author of the article. We'll post a link to it on our website with the podcast. And I want to thank Professor Tillman from, with, uh, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank,
0: thank you, you so much, Ian.